Pastor Sam said it would not be a legit Brian Treziak sermon if I didn't give anything away, so I'm going to do so. And uh, I have a book that goes along with what we're going to be talking about this morning. The book is called Devoted to God, Blueprints for Sanctification by Sinclair Ferguson. Hopefully there will be a picture up on the, on the board soon so you'll be able to see what it looks like and not just like miniature form. But what this book does, by obviously from its title, it gives us a, a practical, biblical, useful resource of how we can grow in our Christian life. So, I want to give this book away to somebody today, and there's two criteria for volunteering to get this book. Number one, you actually want to read it, because I don't want to just give it away to somebody, again, that's going to sit on the shelf and be a nice blue book on your shelf. But I also want to give it to somebody, give it away to somebody who has been at Eastridge the shortest amount of time. So if you are here and you want the book and you've been coming to Eastridge for less than a year, we go ahead and raise your hand. Oh, I saw Matt's hand first. All righty. There you go. And for those of you who did not get a copy, you will notice on the back of your sermon notes, there's the information. And then for a lucky few, there's actually a small stack of books on the table outside by the counseling table. So if you tackle everybody on your way out of the door, you can be able to get one. So, lots of thoughts. Um, for a while now, I've been trying to think of a way to sum up 12 years. Um, and I, the, the word that has come back to me again and again has been the word joy. That it has been a joy to be here. It has been a joy to be involved in this church with this family for the amount of time that God has allowed my family and I to be here. Um, as with all things, it hasn't always been happy because, you know, ministry is tough at times. And we all understand that life is cha- presents its challenges. But I'm a firm believer in what James says, that we are counted all joy when we face various trials because we know what those trials produce. Those trials produce godliness. Those trials And the things that God has us walk through are the things that he uses in our lives to make us the people he wants us to be. And um, it has been a joy to walk through the things in my own life. It has been a joy to see how God has worked in many of your lives. And it has been a joy to see what God has done and will continue to do in this church. So it has been a joy. So thank you. Um, I just thought, and I had this thought this morning, about 12 years, did not make me a 12th man. So I'm still not a Seahawks fan, even though we've been here for so long. I know, it's okay. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> but one of the joys that has been a constant here is actually being able to stand here uh, behind this pulpit and preach God's word. And for those of you who have been here for quite a while, you know that one of the things that I was able to do is to be able to preach through the book of Hebrews. I started early on saying that, you know, just so that I didn't have to come up with a new sermon every every time that John was gone or I had an opportunity to preach, I figured I'd just start and preach my way through the book of Hebrews and I would get as far as I 
as God allowed, and he graciously allowed me to get through the whole book of Hebrews. It only took 10 years to do so, but we're able to get through Hebrews. And now, uh, a little while ago, started in the book of Ecclesiastes, but we've only made it to chapter 2. And so, I figured that as the last opportunity that I have to preach here, I figured that I could preach the whole book. So we're going to be here until like this afternoon. We'll just let the second service people... No, just that's not what I'm doing. But I figured that we would at least talk about the last few verses of the book because the last few verses of this book is where Solomon actually answers the question that he's been asking throughout the entire book. After telling us that all is vanity almost 40 times throughout these 12 chapters, he finally lets us know that there's hope. And the hope is, is that we can be normal. But what does it mean to be normal? Well, the dictionary.com definition says that to be normal is conforming to the standard or common type, the usual state or average. Webster Dictionary says that being normal is conforming to a type, standard, or regular pattern, characterized by that which is considered usual, typical, or routine. But that makes us ask the question, what is typical? What's usual? What's routine? What is normal? What's standard are we using to define what is normal? And I don't know about you, but the last couple years have been a really good example of how we can't look to this world as to what is usual, as to what is normal. We can't look to the standard of the world. That what was usual back in 2019 is not usual in 2021. That what was usual in this country is not what is usual in another country. And so when we talk about these things, and when we ask these questions, we have to look at a different standard. We have to look at something that is outside of this world to define what is normal. And thankfully, the Bible, particularly Ecclesiastes chapter 12, provides us that answer. And so just to kind of get some context, I'm going to try and do the best I can to review the last 11 and a half chapters so that we can understand why Solomon says what he says at the end of the book. So, in the famous words of Inigo Montoya, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, son of David, at the end of his life. And he's looking back over his life and he's evaluating what he has done and all the things that he has accomplished and he does not like what he sees. He starts off in chapter 1, verse 3, asking the question, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, he's asking the question, What is the meaning of life? And Ecclesiastes is the account of how he tried to answer that question. And in chapter 1, he tells us right off the bat that everything is vanity, that all is vanity. Chapter 2, there's vanity in pleasure. Chapter 3, we are all from dust and we will return to dust. Chapter 4, he says that there is evil and oppression under the sun. Chapter 5, there is nothing but vanity in wealth and honor. Chapter 6, there is still nothing, there is still nothing and only vanity in wealth and honor because eventually you die. Chapter 7, God has made the day of adversity as well as a day of prosperity and surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Chapter 8, we see a little glimmer of, of hope where he says that 
Generally, for those who fear God, it goes better for you than if you don't fear God. And in chapter 9, he says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they die. It's a good message so far. Chapter 10, we have a lot of statements that Solomon gives, lots of proverbs, one like this. It says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Though the roof, though through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Chapter 11, more wise sayings like this one. The tree, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Just ponder that one. (laughs) Which brings us finally to chapter 12, where it starts off by saying, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And this is where Solomon starts to turn our attention to God for the last time. Because as you remember, throughout the book, one of his favorite phrases that he uses is under the sun. And that phrase, under the sun, means that Solomon was only looking on the horizontal. He was looking for meaning. And he was looking for lasting happiness and value apart from God. And in his search, he came up empty. And at different points, he makes reference to God. But by and large, his entire search was devoid of a Godward view. But now at the end of the book, he wants to finish his discourse by drawing our attention above the sun. Drawing our attention to where we find lasting value. Drawing our attention to an eternal perspective, to a biblical worldview. And so he says this in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So again, Solomon started off the book in chapter 1, verse 3, asking, what does a man gain by all the toil of which he toils under the sun? What is the meaning of life? And here at the end of the book, he finally answers that question. And so we're going to see three things today. Number one, we're going to see what we are to do. Number two, we're going to see why we were made. And number three, how we can be normal. So first point on your outline, if you're following along, this is what we are to do. We are to fear and obey God. We are to fear and obey God. And if this is what we're to do, it's important to talk, to have an understanding of what we're talking about. So we need to define our terms a little bit here. So we can look at obedience and we understand Obedience, that's pretty straightforward. The dictionary definition says that obedience is to comply or follow the instructions you are given. In other words, it means to do what you're told. And in a biblical sense, obedience means doing what you're told, when you're told to do it, with the right attitude. For those of you who are parents, this is a really good way, a really good lesson to teach your children that this is what obedience looks like. Obedience means doing what I say, when I say, with a good attitude. So that, you know, if you ask your kid to do something and they don't do it, immediately disobedience. If you ask them to do something and they take their sweet time doing it, like, you know, go take out the trash and then next Tuesday they finally take it out, disobedience. And then if you ask them what, if you ask them to do something and they roll their eyes so much that they could see their brains, (laughs) disobedience. 
But at the same time, that is true for adults, that we have the responsibility before God to do what he asks us to do in the time he asks us to do it with the attitude that shows that we have a right heart towards him. We can take the example of giving for, uh, that the Bible talks about. The Bible says that we are to give. We are commanded to give. And so that's a command that God gives us that we are to obey. And even though we are not given a specific time when we are to give, God does talk about giving be a part, being a part of our worship. That part of our Sunday morning gatherings is to include the worshipful action of giving. So there is a time that God expects us to give. And we have a responsibility to give our offerings a prime spot in our monthly budgets. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God says that he loves a cheerful giver, that it is to be a source of joy for us to give back to God out of the things that he has given to us. So we are to obey doing what we're told when we're told to do it with the right attitude towards God. Now, when we talk about fear, and in this instance, the fear of God, that's a little bit more tricky. Because based upon the context of where we find the fear of God, it can mean one of many different things. And... Um, I'll let you guys do that for your homework to find out what all of those different ways might mean. But what we're dealing with here in this passage is we are talking about the wise and righteous living of a genuine worshiper of God. That one's view of God is the motivating desire and the motivating passion to have a right relationship with him, which brings about a desire to serve him and obey him. This is the type of fear of God that that understands who God is and that his ways are best. That he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And he has created this world to function in a specific way. And he has created us and given us instructions on how we are to function within the world that he allows us to live in. And this fear of the Lord is the type that realizes that it is wise and right to do things God's way. That living a life of worship means that we live a life that reflects that God is most important. And this this is the way we see Solomon writing here. Now you've heard me say many, many times that I don't consider myself a grammar nerd. But every once in a while, the grammar of the Bible really catches my attention. And we see that here. And it's something that really doesn't come across that well in English. But if we were to look at the original Hebrew of this passage, a literal reading of this phrase would me would read God fear and his commandments keep that the subject comes before the verb that it is God we are to fear and it is his commandments that we are to keep and Solomon is doing this for emphasis to show what is most important that yes it is important for us to fear God and it is important for us to obey but our obedience and our fear is not what is most important in this verse God is most important it is God that we need to focus on It is God that we are to fear, and it is his commandments that we are to obey. And the grammar helps point us to those things, points us to what Solomon wants us to realize is most important. And another thing that helps us understand these things is the order in the way these phrases are given. That it says, fear God and obey his commandments. That we have to have a right understanding of God before we can have a right living before him. That our right understanding leads to right Living, that it is the fear of God and obey his commandments. Or as one commentator says, 
conduct derives from worship. A knowledge of God leads to obedience, not vice versa. And Solomon is hinting at the fact that our obedience is to flow from our worship. Or as the book of James tells us, that it is our faith that gives life to our actions, that our actions that we do, our good works that we practice, are an outflow of the faith that we have in God. So what are we to do? We are to fear God and obey His commandments. We are to worship Him by living for Him. Next question is, why are we to do this? Because this is why we were made. Point number two, this is why we were made. This is man's all. And I know in a group this size, we probably have a number of different versions that you all are reading from. So I'm reading from the ESV and it says, this is the whole duty of man. The NIV says, this is the duty of all mankind. The New American Standard, this applies to every person. New King James, for this is man's all. King James, this is the whole duty of man. And Christian Standard Bible, this is for all humanity. So why are there so many different ways of translating this? Well, the part of the reason why all these different versions say that is because the word duty is not in the original Hebrew. That English translators put that into, the, into our Bibles to kind of help us out a little bit, to help us understand, to make sense of the, the English. A literal reading of this verse would say that God you fear and his commandments you keep is the whole of man. Now to make it flow better in English, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole of man. And basically what Solomon is trying to let us know is that this is what it means to be human. That this is the essence of our existence. This is why we exist. Then we're, when we're talking about why we exist, the best place for us to go to, un, to understand further these things is to look at creation, to look at how God describes how and why he made us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. Now, there's many ways that we can talk about what that means to be made in the image of God. But basically what it means to be made in the image of God is that we were created by God to be like God, to live for God. That we were created by God to be like God, to live for God. In other words, we were created to reflect God. Our lives are to point to Him. God created us with the specific intention of drawing attention to Himself. And Ecclesiastes 12, 13 is letting us know that the way we do that, the way that we fulfill the reason why we were made is by fearing Him and obeying His commandments. That we are to live in such a way that shows that He is most important and that His ways are best. That's why we were created. But we also see the very similar things at the end of the spectrum, at the end of life, when we finally go to be with Him. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And this verse tells us that we are not what we will be. 
Because what we will be is we will be like him. And when is that going to happen? When he appears. It says that when he appears, we will be like him. So that one day in the future, when Jesus appears, we will be like Jesus. And Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And if we will one day be like Jesus, it means that one day we will have the image of God fully restored to us. So we were originally created to bear the image of God. And we will one day be restored to the image of God, which means that to be created fully, that we are created to fully and rightly and perfectly bear the image of God. We were made to be image bearers. And so, in order to be normal, to be normal in the biblical sense, is to rightly and completely bear the image of God as He designed us to. But there's a problem. We're not normal. Because of sin, this world does not function the way that God wants it to. Sin has invaded God's original design. And we don't do what God has designed us to do. And so from that standpoint, there has really only been three normal people throughout all of human history. Adam and Eve before the fall and Jesus. All of us are not normal. Only those three have fully and completely and rightly and perfectly fulfilled what it means to bear the image of God. You and me, we're not normal. And we're not normal because we are sinners. And we are sinners who sin. And the fact that we sin means that we function opposed to the way God designed us to function. But the good news is, is that we can be normal. Colossians 3 tells us, tells us that for those who are in Christ, we are being renewed into the image of Christ. Second Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we are being transformed into His image. And Romans 8.29, which obviously comes after Romans 8.28, and we love Romans 8.28, which means that God works all, together, all things for good for those who love Him. We love that verse, but we often miss verse 29, which Paul then goes on to describe how the good that God is doing for those who are in Him is conforming them to his son, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And what this means is that as we walk with Christ, we are increasing our ability to rightly bear the image of God, which means that we are increasing in our ability to be normal. And Ecclesiastes 12:13 tells us how that our all Everything about us, the reason why we were made was to fear God and to obey His commandments. Fearing God and obeying His commandments is not just something that He's telling us to do, but fearing God and obeying His commandments is what He's telling we are. That is why we are here. 
And throughout this book, Solomon has been telling us about his pursuit to find happiness, to find meaning under the sun, to find happiness and meaning in this world apart from God, and he came up empty. But now his gaze is finally going above the sun. His gaze is finally going to the Lord. And he tells us the reason why we exist, that the meaning of life is bound up in fearing God and obeying his commandments. In verse 14, he gives us the reason for why he says that. Verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And here we see Solomon connecting the meaning of life with the judgment of God. Now we can read that verse. We can read verse 12 or verse 14. And we can feel convicted. And we can get fearful. And we can be scared to think about the judgment of God. And I think there's an element where that's good. But I don't think that's Solomon's point in telling us about the judgment of God here. I don't think Solomon is trying to scare us about the big bad God who's up there like the policeman just with his radar gun waiting to catch you. I don't think that's the image of God he wants us to have. No, I think that by telling us about the judgment of God, telling us that there's a judgment is his way of telling us that everything that we do has meaning. I mean, as you think of the book of Ecclesiastes, what's the one word that comes to your mind? Vanity. Meaningless. Or like one of my professors says, soap bubbles. Because that's kind of how the perspective of Solomon, you exist for a little while and then you, you're done. So the whole book, he has been talking about vanity because he says it over and over again. Why? Because he has tried to find meaning in this life. He has tried to find happiness in this world apart from God and all of his pursuits. He has come up with nothing. But now, at the end of the book, by telling us about the judgment of God, he is letting us know that God knows what you do. But not only does God know what you do, but he cares what you do. He cares about what you do. And look at the comprehensive terms he uses. He says every deed, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so I don't think he's necessarily trying to scare us about the judgment of God, but by saying that there is a judgment, he's letting us know that everything that we do has meaning. That every one of our deeds, even the secret thing, has a value. That everything we do will be evaluated and everything that we do will be given the value of either good or evil. And by telling us to fear God and keep His commandments, that's Solomon's way of letting us know, of encouraging us to do what is good. This is Solomon's way of encouraging us to do what is right, to do what is good, and to do what is wise. In a sense, this is kind of Solomon's version of 1 Corinthians 10.31, where it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the 
That was okay. Yes, we are to do all to the glory of God. So, what is it that Solomon is telling us to do? We are to fear God. Why? Because this is why we were made. We were made to fear God and obey His commandments. That is man's all. Which brings us to the last point where it says, this is how we can be normal. This is how we can be normal, by counting others more significant. Now, I could have said some phrase, because you probably were all thinking that I was going to say something like, be like Jesus. Right? Like, we could be normal to be like Jesus. And there's a sense in which that phrase is true. I mean, we said earlier that there's only been three normal people in all of human history, Adam and Eve, before the fall, and Jesus. Well, we can't be like Adam and Eve because we don't know much about them until they started getting hungry. And then they lost it. But Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the one in whose image we are being transformed, he is what is normal. He is our standard. And so to be normal is to be like Jesus. But that's a little bit too general. That's a little bit too fuzzy. One of my professors says we need to get out of fuzzy land. But by saying the phrase, count others more significant, we learn to be a little bit more concrete in the way that we apply the Bible. And as we think about considering more others as more significant, that gives us a little bit more to work with. And this phrase obviously comes from Philippians chapter 2. So let's turn over real quick to Philippians chapter 2. And because it's my last Sunday, I'm I'm a good Baptist preacher. I'm just going to have like 500 conclusions. No, just kidding, I'm not. Philippians chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read. So... Starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. There it is. Verse 4. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says that we are to be working towards unity. He's calling for unity among the believers by encouraging us to be of the same mind, meaning that we are to all be thinking the same way. And what does he want us to think about? Well, verse 3, don't be selfish and conceited, but be humble. Verse 4, be more concerned about the interests of others than you are about your your own interests. And why does Paul tell us to do this? Why does Paul tell us to think like this? Because that's the way Jesus thought. More specifically, that's the way Jesus thought about us, about you. 
That even though he was God, he did not cling to his deity. He did not look to his own interest, but he looked to our greatest need. And so he humbled himself by becoming a servant in order to save us. The greatest way possible by dying on the cross. Because salvation, even if we didn't even realize it, salvation is our greatest interest. We should be very interested of not going to hell and going to heaven, right? And Jesus considered that interest. And so he let go of his interest. He let go of his deity in order to fulfill our greatest interest, in order to accomplish our greatest need. And that is what it means to be normal. To be normal means to let go of our interests so that we can be more concerned about the interests of others. To be more concerned about what others want rather than what we want. Because it was Paul Tripp who tells us that the DNA of sin is selfishness. And that sin causes us to dehumanize people. Because when we sin, we no longer see people as people. And here, in Philippians 2, Paul tells us not to be selfish and conceited. And the reason why he has to tell us not to be selfish and conceited because is because our natural tendency is to be what? Selfish and conceited. That we are convinced of our own importance. And because we are selfish and conceited, we no longer see people as people. We see them as objects. That either you are the means of how I can be happy, and so I'm going to use you, or you are in the way of me being happy, so I need to eliminate you. Because of our sinful nature, we are more prone to think that I am more important than you. But that's not normal. That's not what we were designed to do. And the vast majority of why we have conflict in our lives comes down to this point. That we want what we want. And we have these unsaid expectations of other people that you are, are here to fulfill my happiness. That you are here, that you exist to help me get what I want. Because I am more important than you. And even though we would never intentionally think that, and even though we would never intentionally say that to people, the Bible is telling us that that's who we are. That that's what we do. And our lives give evidence to the fact the reason why, the vast majority of the reason why we get angry and we get depressed and we get anxious is because people are not fulfilling what we want them to do. Because they have the audacity uh, to not do and to not give us what we want. But that's not normal. 
It's not normal for us to expect others to always give us what we want. What is normal is to be more concerned about what they want, to consider their interests, to be more concerned about what they want. Because that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus treated us. That's how Jesus thought. But that's important. That's hard to do. For honest. I'll even take it one step further. That's impossible for us to do. On our own. This is why we need the gospel. This is why Paul, in this passage specifically, and throughout his letters, connects our understanding of the gospel, a right understanding of Christ, with a right living before God. Because it's in the gospel that we see how Christ let go of his interests so that we can be saved. He rescues us from our selfish conceit so that we can follow in his footsteps so that we can be normal. So what does it mean to be normal? It means to fear God and keep his commandments. And why are we to fear God and keep his commandments? It's because that's why we were made. That's why we exist. So what does it look like to be normal? And there's so many things that I could have said and ways in which to apply this passage, but because this is the last time I'll be here as associate pastor, this is one of the things that I am praying for this church. That you all will be normal. And be normal by being humble and by considering the interests of others. Because that's what Christ did for us. And by God's grace, we are becoming more and more like Him. Which means that day by day, we are becoming more normal. Will you pray with me? God, we are humbled and we are thankful. We are humbled by the honesty with which your word describes us. We are humbled by the sin that still remains. But we are humbled even more so by the amazing grace that you give. That we are able because of Christ to be more like Christ, to be more normal. And I pray, Lord, that we would be those who would consider 
the interests of others, that we would be more concerned about others, that we would count others as more significant than ourselves because that's what you did for us. And that is how we can fear you and obey your commandments. Father, we do praise you and thank you that you are such a good and gracious God who rescues us from our sin and may we grow to be greater worshipers of you. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.